Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to have you with us in God's house today. My name is Chris, the lead pastor here, and I'm looking forward to this time. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 8. If you were with us last week, we uh, were in the verses that immediately precede where we're going to read today in Romans 8. And it's important to continue to remember this. Uh, the Bible, when it was written, when Paul was writing this letter to, to the church in Rome, he was not writing with chapter and verse breaks. That was not, that came later. And so one of the temptations that we have when we read our Bibles is we think, well, Romans 7, that's like, that was a chapter. And then Paul starts a new chapter. Uh, this was just a new paragraph. So Paul is just making one continuous argument. And it's my conviction. I, I, it's more than my conviction. I am right about this. Um, you can't understand Romans 8 apart from thinking about Romans 7. Like they're just connected. They're, they're literally connected. The, the first verse we're going to read is one of those refrigerator verses. Like if you had a grandma who put things on the fridge, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's like one of the woo, like greatest hits of the Bible for a good reason, because it's an amazing sentence that we are not people who have to experience condemnation, but it's really important for us to recognize that Paul right before that has just said, I feel all kinds of inner turmoil. So apart from the reality of naming all of our inner turmoil, which we're going to look at again, the idea that Jesus has made us to be the kinds of people who do not need to experience condemnation, like that feels hollow apart from acknowledging that we're tempted to feel condemned every single day. So I want you to admit your inner turmoil so that the good news of what Jesus and the Holy Spirit have will actually sound like good news. That's the whole point of Romans 8 is that Jesus and the Spirit have done something for us because we experience all kinds of inner turmoil. So let's read, let's pray, let's try to hear the Holy Spirit through our brother Paul. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind is set, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we need to know that you have given us life and that that life 
can and will manifest in our mortal bodies, the same bodies that experience all this inner turmoil. We pray, God, today for an awareness of your life. Holy Spirit, we ask you to meet each and every one of us right where we are. We thank you for, for Paul. We thank you for these words in Romans 8. We thank you, God, for the argument Paul is making about how we can hold the inner turmoil and look for your life in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first thing we need to think about is therefore. My mother was an English teacher. Uh, she said, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what's it there for? Uh, and the only way you know what it's there for is to back up. So we're going to look at the very end of Romans 7, put that slide up, and we're going to leave this up. Um, so this is, this is the message. And some of you think of yourselves as really smart Christians, would look down on the message translation, think it's not real. Eugene Peterson uh, translated the message from the original Greek and Hebrew. It's not a paraphrase. It's actually a translation. But he did it in a way where he tried to capture the colloquial language of the day. Um, and I love Peterson. He's gone on to be with the Lord. I once spent a week with Eugene Peterson at a place called the Laity Lodge um, in uh, West Texas. And it was like one of the highlights of my life until he told me that he thought my church was too big. And it was like one of the greatest disappointments of my life. We're, we're having lunch. Um, and he was sitting there and I was so excited. It was like meeting one of your heroes. And in the course of the meal, he's like, so how many people go to your church? I was like, I don't know, 800. He goes, that's too big. <laughs> and I was just like. <laughs> so we're going to quote him anyway. <laughs> so this is, this is Peterson helping us to hear Paul. This is, this is Peterson translating Paul in a way that probably will get closer to your bones. He says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? I mean, if you've lived five minutes, you've asked that question. Is there no one who can do anything for me? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. It's beautiful. It's like you read those words and... It just helps build a little bit of a bridge to get Paul's argument down into the groundwater of, of real life. Like this is where the rubber hits the road. All of us, if we are honest with ourselves, occasionally say, is there no one who can do anything for me? Like if you've ever felt that inner turmoil, I just want you to be honest about it. Pretending that we don't feel this pull I mean, y'all, we'd rather just be one, all, or the other. I mean, I, I think there have been times in my life where I was like, I'd just rather be all good or all bad. Like, I don't know how to handle this thing. Like, I'd rather be a monster sometimes than just be a complicated person. What Paul is saying here is exactly the reality of like, what do we do in the middle of a life of contradictions? And I just want to ask you, what, what do you actually do when you experience all those contradictions? Christians get weird right here. We either double down in our own efforts and become like really pharisaical or really mean and less and less honest about our lives, or we sometimes just give up on the whole thing because we don't know what to do with this. 
I would say Paul's probably getting at one of the core struggles of what it means to be a human that is trying to figure out how to please God, wants to please God, and at the same time has this gravitational pull that goes in all sorts of other directions. So with this in mind, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? With that in mind, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second movement, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul mean by this? Does he just mean like, go on robbing liquor stores and drinking until you're drunk, like blind drunk and you're fine. Is that what he's saying? It's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is that Jesus has actually come to do something for us that will liberate us from a sense of shame and condemnation. I think actually what Paul is saying, and there's a reason why in this argument, he begins to talk about what Jesus did in his body. Because Paul's making an argument, right? When he uses the term flesh here in Romans 7 and in Romans 8, um, flesh doesn't just mean, like it, it basically means this like lower base nature. And Paul has just basically said that all the gravitational pull that pulls me away from the good life that God has, it's like base stuff. It's, it's trying to satisfy my need for security in my own way, not God's way. It's trying to satisfy my need for significance in my own way versus God's way. So there's a lot of talk about flesh. And then Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And then he says, Jesus actually in his flesh, in his physical body, the thing that we all think of as a liability for us, Jesus did something for us in his flesh so that we might be people who do not experience shame and condemnation. This is really important. Because if we don't begin to wrap our heads around as Christians, th this is a, a letter written to Christians. So I know I'm speaking to most, most of you are Christian in here, or at least you're curious about this stuff or you wouldn't be here. There'd be other things to do uh, on a Sunday than come hang out with us. So we're Paul's audience. We're, we're actually in the audience here. Paul is saying you don't have to live with a sense of condemnation. And this is what I've been wrestling with and thinking about. Um, we have all experienced condemnation. Every one of us in this room has not only experienced it, but we have given condemnation to other people. It's just what broken people do. We experience it in our homes in our jobs, in our friendships. Like condemnation is something we know. It's something we feel. There have been times in my own life as a pastor and as a dad where I have extended condemnation without even really meaning to. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, when confronted with the life of contradictions, when confronted with our tendency to sin, even though we want to please God, Jesus moves toward people versus away from them. And I can think of my own life, some of the biggest condemnation that I ever received, it wasn't when someone like beat me up, it was when someone couldn't handle the big emotions or the volatility that I had. And so I learned like, oh, I'm too much. And ironically, as a dad, some of my biggest condemning behavior toward my kids, I had no idea. I, was, I just wanted to shrink down big emotions by fixing things or controlling things or solving problems. And I communicated to my kids, like, your big emotions are too big. That's condemning. 
Jesus, when he's confronted with your big stuff, your contradictions, your sin, the, the stuff that's overwhelming, he moves toward us in that space in order to bring healing and life and restoration. He's not anxious about your messiness. Paul here is trying to get us to see Jesus has done something. Jesus and the Holy Spirit have done something to make us whole and connected to God, i.e. not condemned. Some of us in this space, we, we feel condemnation so deeply and consistently that we, like fish, don't know they're wet. We've forgotten what it looks like or we have no grid for what true freedom would look like. Make no mistake about it, Paul here is pointing us to the good life. He's actually saying Jesus has done something on your behalf. And there's a, a hint in the middle of this connected to this idea of condemnation. And there is no condemnation. There's a hint of resurrection here. Paul is reminding us that Jesus took sin and death in his body. And he went to the cross and carried it. And then he was resurrected. So what that teaches us is that Jesus actually, rather than avoiding sin, rather than like seeing your brokenness and thinking like, ooh, hope you can work that out. He took that on himself and did not back away from the darkest place and then emerged out the other side victoriously. Like Paul here is like hiding a teaching about resurrection in the middle of a teaching about the good life. Resurrection teaches us some super important stuff, y'all. We're ultimately, we're Easter people. We're people who believe because Jesus was resurrected. And when I think about what Paul is saying here, I think resurrection tells me that physicality matters. Resurrection tells me that there is life on the other side of all the uncertainties that we're facing. It also teaches us that hurts don't last forever. So I don't have to run away. Jesus didn't run away. He invites us to believe him. Paul here is making this statement. The third movement, I think, invites us to consider it. He speaks about learning to walk according to the Spirit over and over again. He says the mindset on the Spirit and the, contrast it with the mindset on the flesh. The mindset on God, the mindset on other things that will ultimately not ever satisfy us. And I love this because the force of what Paul is saying here in this third movement carries four movements to it. So he says that a mindset on the Spirit is free from condemnation. That's number one. Using that word I just used for number two is one that experiences freedom. So there's no condemnation and then freedom. And then number three, the spirit mind is empowered. It's not just left to its own devices. It's, it's animated and energized with power. And then number four, that power leads to life and peace. So who among us doesn't want to be free from condemnation, to experience freedom in general, from sin, from hurt, from shame, who doesn't want power or need it? And then who among us doesn't want to experience life and peace? What Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit has come to do these things for us. So as we learn to walk according to the Spirit, there are markers or indicators that will help us understand when we're on track. And I would submit to you that the character of walking in the Spirit 
is not just that you know things no one else knows or you have chill bump experiences that no one else has. Uh, for those of you like me that grew up in the charismatic church, I, I thought walking in the spirit was just that you were like, you know, super energized Christian, which I think can be part of it. But what Paul here is saying is a life patterned after the spirit is marked by the absence of condemnation. And that just means shame and hiding lose their grip. The Holy Spirit wants you to be a person who is not hiding. Because I can guarantee you, if you're hiding from God, you're also hiding from people. Hiding is just what we do when we have shame on us. If you think about the earliest humans, right, and the story that God gives us, when Adam and Eve sinned, and realized that they were naked, what did they do? They hid. And then they tried to fix the problem on their own by making clothes out of fig leaves, like, you know, things that would break and, and still show their butts. And we've basically been doing that ever since. And so the Holy Spirit comes to free you from shame. Not so that you can just be shameless in your sinning, to free you from shame so that you would be whole and have less and less and less to hide. But then there's this notion from, for, about freedom that's not just connected to condemnation. Paul speaks about freedom as another mark or characteristic of the Holy Spirit's work. And I would think here that freedom is not just freedom from shame, but it's freedom from sin. Freedom from compulsive behavior, freedom from believing things. So part of the freedom that the Holy Spirit's been working in me as it relates to, to you and to my family and to my friends is a kind of freedom where I don't feel like I have to fix every problem that's put in front of me. That that's God's job. I can then therefore be present and trust that the Holy Spirit is working. Freedom for you might mean freedom from like an addiction of some kind, but it might also mean freedom in an area where you have believed something. You have an attitude or a posture that's leading you away from the good life towards something less joyful and hopeful. The Holy Spirit has come to make you free. Freedom from sin and freedom to just be present and at peace and at rest, trusting that God is near you. The third thing the Holy Spirit does, the, the marker, is power. And this is really important because a lot of us, maybe most of us, um, live our lives as if we're responsible to do all the work. I mean, we sometimes say we trust God and then we act as if it's just down to us. Um, Paul here reminds us that the Holy Spirit has come to bring power. So I want you to think about your life plus the animating power of God that pushes you into places of, of life and power and freedom that you could never achieve on your own. That's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. I think he's asking us to lean into asking him for power, an animating life that would move our life beyond where it currently is. So where are you stuck? The Holy Spirit has something to say about that. Which leads us to that fourth characteristic, a life marked by life and peace. So Paul here is making an argument that actually gives us some tracks to run on. If you want to know what a life walking according to the Spirit looks like, I would say it's increasingly marked by no condemnation, 
by freedom, power, and life and peace. Who among us doesn't want that? That's what God has for you. He doesn't just have heaven for you. He has those things here and now for us as believers. And I think it's really, really important for us to hold that and to think about what does it look like for me to set my mind on the spirit? I would argue that it means thinking about the places where we are experiencing condemnation, where we're less than free, where we're lacking power, and where maybe peace and life are elusive to us and saying, come Holy Spirit into those places in our lives. Here's the last thing. The Spirit of God dwells in us. This is one of the big, I think, intellectual problems that we have as people of faith is that we tend to think of God as being like up there or out there and that we're trying to figure out how to make him uh, do things for us or to get near to us or to get his attention. And Paul here is making some really provocative statements. He says the work of God, the life of God, the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Jesus are not far away from us. They are actually dwelling in us. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians where Paul, again, elsewhere says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which means God is not far from you. God's not adjacent to you waiting to see if you're going to pass a test. If you belong to the Lord, if you're a Christian, even a Christian who is living in the midst of a bunch of contradictions, that God is actually in you, indwelling you, that you are um, one who is proximate and close to God. And y'all, that changes like the whole imagination for how we deal with our temptation and our contradictions. It's, it's, it's an inside job that God's wanting to do, not just like begging for help from a distance. And I just want to say, if you've not thought about it that way, maybe because of that, you've not had an experience of the nearness of God. That doesn't make it less true. If you were a Christian, God is in you, indwelling you. So when I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit for help, I'm not hoping the Holy Spirit's going to like hop on the train and, and find me somewhere. I'm acknowledging that as a child of God, I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit and I'm asking for the awareness of the nearness and the power in the life of God. And I believe that that changes sometimes the way that we live when we begin to pray as if God were near to us and wanting to help us. So here's where I want to leave us. What would it look like for you to set your mind on the Spirit? I think in part, to help you answer that question, it would look like you beginning to think about things like freedom from condemnation, freedom, power, life, and peace. What I've learned in my own life is that for me to set my mind on the spirit versus on the things of the flesh, meaning places where I get into my base tendencies, try to solve my own problems, try to just feel better, that requires intentionality. It requires time. It requires calibrating and recalibrating my habits and my rhythms and my patterns. The same is going to be true for you. At some point, when we're walking in this life, we have to put our money where our mouth is. We have to actually carve out space to think about and reflect on the things that are going to move us toward the work of God. So what I want us to do is to take a few moments 
in silent reflection for you to ask this question, what would it look like this week in a concrete way for me to set my mind on the spirit? And it could just be very simple, some space before your day gets going, a walk where you think about those four categories. Let's spend some time thinking about what it would look like for us to focus our minds on the spirit and then we'll come to the communion table together. But first, let's be still. Just